Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org. The date is Wednesday, April 3, 2013, and we're going to be part three of the impact of the railroad on America and American history with our dear friend Ira Fistel. So without further ado, Ira, the telephone in this case is yours, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me, Bob. Uh, we've covered a lot of the uh, history of the American railroads up until roughly the last quarter of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. So I'm going to pick it up at that point, uh, and I'm going to start with the, uh, what would you say, the recovery following the Great Depression of 1873 when for several years there was no money in circulation and no, no new lines were being built and everything was kind of frozen for a few years. But the 1880s were different. Uh, it was a time of huge construction of new mileage, new lines. And when you think about it, uh, there were a lot of lines built that weren't actually uh, vital in the sense that they may have served some towns that weren't otherwise being served, but they were redundant in the sense that they followed the routes that other companies were already operating. And the reason why this was done was because there was no alternative way of, of moving around the country or shipping anything unless you happened to have a, uh, a nice river system or a lake around because if you didn't have transportation by water, as late as the 1890s, the only alternative was horsepower or walking, and, uh, or if you don't have water transport. So that every little town wanted to have its own railroad, and every little village wanted its own connection to the big city, uh, so that there was a, a huge overbuilding and particularly in certain places in the country. Uh, the grain areas of the Midwest had lots and lots and lots of track that really uh, was only used extensively during the harvest season, and yet there was no other way to move anything out, so people kept investing more and more money in building more and more redundant lines, with the result that the United States had well over a quarter of a million miles of track, uh, probably by around the turn of the century. And remember, we started with 30 miles in 1832. So uh, a huge amount of building was done. Well, at the same time, there were some technical changes that had a huge impact. And we have to discuss two of them. It's one thing to be able to start a train but it's another to be able to stop it. And up until the late part of the 19th century, the art of braking was very primitive. Uh, you'd have five guys on the train, and they'd all hold big wooden clubs, and when the engineer wanted to stop, he'd whistle for brakes down, and these five guys would come out onto the tops of the cars and twirl their brake wheels with their huge brake clubs and by hand put the brakes on and try to stop the train. Well, it was very difficult, 
it was very hard to work on tops of the cars, especially in the winter when it was snow and ice. And it didn't work very well on downgrades. Uh, there was a big threat of running away. And so trains had to be kept to very short lengths and very light in weight because there was no braking power. Well, George Westinghouse, the founder of the Westinghouse Company, saw the need for something better. And he hit on an idea that nobody else had thought of up to that time. People had decided, tried to use steam brakes, water brakes, chains, you know, to tighten chains. But what Westinghouse heard of was the drilling of the Mont Sani tunnel in Europe by air-powered drill, compressed air-powered drills. And he thought, if compressed air can dig a hole through a mountain, why can't compressed air be used to stop a train? And his invention was the air brake. Now, in its first form, the air brake was a simple device. that was a pump on the locomotive that pumped the air into a cylinder at high pressure. And when the air was released, it pushed the brakes on and stopped the train. And they had a dramatic demonstration of this about 1870 in Pittsburgh, which is where Westinghouse was and where his factory was. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Westinghouse is still based in Pittsburgh. Well, anyway, uh, Westinghouse had a test train equipped with his air brake. And this particular day, this test train was out on the road. And up ahead, the, the engineer sees a wagon with a horse stuck on the tracks. There was no way they could possibly stop by using the hand brakes. And he used the Westinghouse air brake, and by golly, the train stopped short of hitting the horse in the wagon. Well, that was all you needed to demonstrate the power of the air brake. However, there was a problem with the original design, which was if the brakes were uh, to work, there had to be air in the pressure tank. What happens if there's a hole in the air holes or if the cylinder doesn't work right? And then all the air gets out of the cylinder and you have no brakes. So Westinghouse redesigned his air brake and improved it by making it a fail-safe device. The air in a train's air brakes doesn't apply the brakes. It holds the brakes off so that the air continues to pump up in the cylinder as long as the train's running. And then when the engineer wants to stop, he releases some air from the cylinder, and the air that is released allows the brake to come down on the wheels. In other words, the device is fail-safe in that the air holds the brakes off the wheels rather than applies them to the wheels. And in that form, the air brake has been a huge success. Uh, I counted a car, a train of uh, freight cars yesterday um, at 133. 133 freight cars, each about uh, average of, say, 50 feet long, is well over a mile long. And the train can run up to 70 miles an hour with big diesel engines. And what stops it? Air the power of compressed air. So George Westinghouse made a huge contribution to the uh, development of the, of the railroads with his air brake. About the same time, uh, 
There was another technological device that was invented, the knuckle coupler. Uh, before the knuckle coupler was invented, the only way you would hold a train together is with chains uh, and a screw device like they still use in Europe. And uh, the brakeman would have to go between cars and steer the link onto the hook on the car ahead of it and then tighten it up. Well, brakemen were usually recognizable by the fact that they didn't have all their fingers because it was so hazardous going between cars when the cars were moving and the engine was pushing the car back to couple up, and the brakeman could get his finger easily caught in the device, and that's the end of the finger. Also, it wasn't a very efficient device because you didn't have much of a way of holding the tension so that the cars would not jerk terribly whenever the train started. You can imagine what it was like if all that was holding the train together was chains. Now, in England and in Europe, they used chains plus buffers. <clears throat> but, uh, but the buffers never caught on in America. Instead, Mr. Eli Janney invented the knuckle coupler. Now, what happens is if you put your hands together with your right hand cupped and the thumb on top and your left hand cupped and the thumb on the bottom, you put your hands together until your left hand hits the palm of your right hand and the palm of your right hand hits the left hand and you make a, two, two cups with your hands, two curved uh, devices, and you pull them and you try pulling your hands apart that way. You can see how the knuckle coupler worked. The nicest thing about it was not that only not only that it was tight and it held firmly, but it was semi-automatic in the sense that if the coupler knuckle were open and another car coupled up to it, the knuckle couplers would lock automatically. So the knuckle coupler was a huge advance, and it didn't take long before all the trains in America were using knuckle couplers. The one problem with the knuckle coupler is it doesn't connect the air hoses. Remember, you have a train line full of compressed air, which is what makes the brakes work. So to this day, the cars will couple all right when they come together, but somebody still has to go between the cars after they're coupled and hook up the air hoses so that the air will go all the way through the train. And that means you still have to have manpower to move those, make those moves, to connect the air, air lines on trains, which means that switching cars is an expensive proposition. Now, the way they've gotten around this to a large extent today is by the development of what they call the unit train. Uh, you'll see long trains, particularly of cars of coal, that's where you see it most. Those trains are never uncoupled. They run from the mine to the power plant, from the power plant back to the mine, load up again, come back to the power plant, unload, go back to the mine, and the cars are never uncoupled. They are always the same number of cars, and they're always the same cars in the same order, and they never are separated. And this has improved the uh, efficiency enormously because it doesn't demand people to go between cars and make couplings with the air hoses. 
So those two devices, the air brake and the Janney coupler, made possible something like I saw the other day, a freight train 133 cars long. The average freight train in the 1880s uh, was about 20 cars. And that's all you could use because you didn't have the means of stopping or the means of holding the cars together securely. So the technological developments of the late 19th century in coupling and air brake were huge, huge advances. They made possible longer, faster, safer, and more efficient trades. All right, this brings us up to what has been called the golden age of railroading in America, roughly the period between 1880 and 1920. The reason why it's called the golden age, of course, is that the mileage reached its maximum, the monopoly characteristics of the rails reached their maximum uh, in that period, when the only land transportation, practically the only practical land transportation was the railroad. During that period, several new transcontinental lines were built. I mentioned some of the, how many thousands of miles were built during the 1880s uh, following the recession. Uh, the Pacific Coast was connected with the East Coast by the 1869 first transcontinental railroad, and nobody thought there'd ever be any more. Well, within the next uh, 40 years, I think at the, the grand total was nine altogether that were built, and they were all in operation by 1920. Uh, actually, by 1909, I think. So, the construction of miles and miles of track was a major factor. So that virtually every place in America was touched by somebody's railroad. At the same time, the railroads were assuming another kind of importance. In the big cities, they were all competing for business, and every city wanted its grandiose terminal, uh, its big station. And some of the great stations in America were, were built during this period, particularly two that I'm going to mention in New York City. The first of those was Penn Station, Pennsylvania Station, uh, at 34th and 7th Avenue. Uh, it covers blocks and blocks underground. To get into Pennsylvania Station, the Pennsylvania Railroad, which built it, had to dig tunnels under the Hudson River and to get out of Manhattan going to New England it had to dig tunnels under the East River and build a Hellgate Bridge. So the construction of Penn Station and its access tracks consumed years, uh, something like seven years between the time the construction started and the time it was finished. But when it was finished, Penn Station became a mecca. The building on top of the station, which is all underground, of course, the building on top of the station was an amazing construction. It was designed on the lines of the Baths of Caracalla in ancient Rome, and it was all steel and glass. You talk about steel and glass skyscrapers? Well, Penn Station was all steel and glass in 1910. And there are photographs that you'll see if you look at American architecture books You'll see photographs of how Penn Station looked at night, streaming light into the sky. This 
magnificent building was destroyed in the 1960s because at that point the passenger train was declining rapidly and the um, powers that be in New York City felt that Penn Station was a waste of space and a waste of money and they could build a skyscraper and a new Madison Square Garden on top of it and make a lot more money. Well, they tore down the station all right, despite the objections of thousands of, uh, of you know, people who wanted this beautiful building saved. And that's where Madison Square Garden is to this day. And it's a mess. It's just a horrible building. And the station, far from not being used anymore, now sees roughly 400,000 people a day pass through its doors. And now they're talking, the New York Times architecture correspondent was just, just wrote a big article last week, they're talking about tearing down Madison Square Garden and the monster structure that they built uh, in 1960-something and restoring, at least to some degree, the architectural significance of the old Penn Station. Well, Pennsylvania Station was a project headed by the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, whose name was Alexander Cassatt. You probably have never heard of Alexander Cassatt, but you may know about something about his sister, because his sister was the famous painter Mary Cassatt. <laughs> I've just been prompted to say Cassatt. Well, I don't know. I thought it was Cassatt. Cassatt. Anyway, uh, she had a great talent for art, art and design, and so did her brother. And his, his was expressed through this magnificent building project in New York City. But Penn Station today exists no more the way it was when he built it. However, three years after Penn Station opened, the other great municipal monument in New York City was opened by the rival New York Central Railroad. And that is Grand Central Station. Grand Central is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. It opened in 1913. And while it doesn't have any long-distance passenger trains today, it still has hundreds and hundreds of commuter trains. And it is one of the most elegant buildings in New York. Uh, it's been totally restored. Uh, 30 years ago, it was full of vagrants and dirt God knows what else. Uh, and now they've totally restored it, and it's absolutely beautiful. And if you are anywhere near New York City and you've never seen Grand Central, make a trip into the city just to see this absolutely gorgeous, beautiful building. The, the uh, vaulted ceiling of Grand Central has the constellations of the sky uh, put up in, in lights on, on the ceiling. And it has these huge Romanesque windows, great streams of light stream into the station. Um, it's just a beautiful, magnificent building. They were going to tear that down, too. But after the experience of Penn Station, this time the preservationists won. So when they built the Pan Am building, which I don't know what it's called now, but it was the Pan Am building when it was built, they didn't tear down the station to do it. They moved it a couple blocks up the street and built it over air rights, but not on the, not where the station is. So Grand Central was was saved, and uh, for all I know, it'll be standing 100 years from now, 200 years from now, maybe 400 years from now, but uh, it is one of the great 
buildings in New York City. Every other city wanted its monumental stations, too. Chicago had six of them. <laughs> uh, leave it to Chicago, the great railroad city, to have more stations than anybody else. And, uh, of course, it has had more railroads than anybody else. Uh, one of the great Chicago stations was called Grand Central. And it wasn't anything like the building of Grand Central in New York, but it was a beautiful architectural monument. And it was destroyed in 1970, 69 or 70, again, because the thought was nobody needed a beautiful railroad station anymore. Nobody was going to ride trains anymore. Ironically, the plot on which Grand Central Station existed with its Norman architecture and beautiful, stunning building has been vacant since the station building was destroyed 40-some-odd years ago. Nobody's built so much as a shack on that property. You tell me they couldn't have found another reason for that building if they'd really tried. All right, anyway, so much for uh, the grand architecture of stations. Some other big projects built at that time. Um, rivalry between companies meant, uh, I mean, as I mentioned, duplication of lines. But one of the most um, unnecessary in the sense that it ran where there already were two competing companies was the extension of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul from uh, the Twin Cities to the West Coast, to Tacoma and Seattle, over the Rockies and over the Bitterroots and over the uh, Coast Range. The Milwaukee Road extension was a little bit different in that it was built in 1909, and within two or three years, part of it, not all of it, but parts of it, were electrified. The first long-distance electrification project in America. In Europe and in Asia and Japan, uh, most of the, you know, the important railways are operated by electricity. But in the United States, there's only been two major uh, long-distance electrifications. One is the current electrification on the East Coast, which uh, covers the entire line from Boston through New York and down to Washington with an extension to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The other was the Milwaukee Road, which had 600 and some odd miles of electrified track in the far west. Well, the electrification was a great idea, and it was much more efficient than steam power, and it was uh, a great way to run a train, but that the business on the line didn't justify the expense of the electrification. It just couldn't attract enough business. And after the two competing lines merged in 1970, uh, it had practically no traffic, and the whole Pacific Coast extension was not only de-electrified, it was closed and torn up. I think it's the longest abandonment uh, I can think of in North America. Over, what, over a thousand miles of track was abandoned. On the other hand, another mountain climbing line was built by David Moffat, the capitalist from Denver, Colorado. And his road was unique in that he financed it himself. He had made a fortune over the years in Denver in real estate, in banking, in mining and in railroading. And he was a very wealthy man, 
at something close to 70 years old when uh, he told his granddaughter, um, look at those mountains you see on the horizon. I'm going to drill a hole for them for, passage, for people to go through. And his granddaughter was about four or five years old and says, well, couldn't people fly over them? And Moffat's response was, not in my lifetime. And he went on and literally bankrupted himself building his own railroad to compete with the powerful Union Pacific, hoping to put Denver on a through main line. I mentioned last time how Denver never recovered from the shock of being left off the main line of the Union Pacific. Well, Moffat died when his railroad had only gotten 300 miles into Colorado, but he did succeed in building over the highest part of the Rockies, a pass called Rollins Pass, where locomotives climbed up into the area where there are no trees, and the only thing living up there are birds and small animals that burrow. There's no trees, there's no grass. Uh, you climb up there today, and you are absolutely amazed that anybody could get a machine as big as a locomotive up there. 11,612 feet above sea level. The Moffat Road climbed more than a mile high in 50 miles from Denver to the summit of the Rockies. And it was a pain in the neck to operate, especially during the winter. It would take five locomotives to lift a freight train over the top of that pass. Uh, the Moffat Crossing was about 37 miles long, and it took five locomotives five hours to get a freight train up and over and back down the other side. <clears throat> well, Moffat, of course, planned this only as a temporary expedient. He wanted to build a tunnel under the mountains, but he was never able to raise enough money to do it. He died in 1911. Seventeen years later, the state of Colorado succeeded in building the Moffat Tunnel six and a half miles long under James Peak, a 14,000-foot peak, in the heart of the Rockies, directly west of Denver. And you can ride through that line today. If you take the Chicago to San Francisco Zephyr, uh, you will ride on the Moffat Line, the, the road that Moffat built, from Denver down to the Colorado River on the other side of the mountains. It's one of the most spectacular trips in North America. So that was another product of that, uh, that period. At the same time, a lot of money was being invested in a subsidy, you know, a, what would you call it, a, a segment of the railroad industry that lasted from birth to death roughly 35 years. And what I'm talking about was the huge network of electric interurban lines. Uh, the name interurban was, was coined by a lawyer in Indiana whose name was Charles Henry, who uh, promoted some of these lines. What they were basically was overgrown streetcars. The streetcar was a huge success in the beginning in about 1890. And as the cities grew and the streetcar lines grew out further and further, the temptation began to build out of the city to the next town or the next suburb or even to a city 100 miles away and run electric cars in competition with the steam railroads. The electric cars were much cheaper to operate. They only needed one or two men. Uh, 
the lines were cheap to build, and they didn't need, uh, you know, uh, huge uh, fleets of locomotives and all the equipment. Uh, they carried mainly local passengers, and that was the problem. The electrical technology was developed after Thomas Edison uh, just, uh, built the first light bulb. Uh, Edison began lighting America by electricity in, I think, 1877. Streetcars, electric streetcars, were running in 1990. Interurbans were running about 1900. But at exactly the same time, another technology was developing, and that was the gasoline-powered engine. And beginning with about 1890, people in Germany and then later in the United States were building automobiles. Automobile, it goes by itself. The early automobile was a rich man's toy. Uh, only the very rich could afford it, and only the very rich had much use for it because there weren't very many paved roads, uh, and you took an automobile out on a country dirt road, and if it rained, uh, you might get stuck in the mud for the rest of the summer. <laughs> and in the winter, you might get stuck uh, in the mud for forever. So the early automobile was not a challenge to the railroad. But beginning with about 1914, when that fellow Ford developed the assembly line process of building cars and had the huge inspiration of paying his workers enough wages that they would be able to buy the products that they were making. Henry Ford didn't invent the automobile. He didn't invent mass production. But what he did was to apply the technology of mass production to a product that had been a rich man's toy and turn it into the poor man's uh, passport to freedom. The automobile built various uh, many cities in America. Uh, Los Angeles, for example, is an automobile city. It was built by the automobile and for the automobile. Uh, Las Vegas, another. Miami. Uh, there are many cities that are automobile paradises because they were built with cars in mind. New York is exactly the opposite. New York has many narrow streets where at best you have three lanes of traffic and uh, usually one or two of those are taken up with uh, parked cars and trucks. But uh, New York City is the epitome of a city built for mass transportation, whereas Los Angeles is the epitome of the city built for the automobile and by the automobile. And the impact of the automobile began to show up very early. Of those thousands and thousands of miles of interurban railroad that were built, uh, extended into the countryside, the longest one ran from uh, St. Louis, Missouri, to Peoria, Illinois, and also across Illinois through Decatur to Danville. Now, that company was called the Illinois Traction System originally, and it actually was big enough and wealthy enough to build its own bridge over the Mississippi River. But by 1925, when paved roads started to be extended across the country, the interurbans were practically through. Some of them were abandoned even before 1925. Uh, we were out in the suburbs of Chicago today in Frankfort, Illinois, 
and there's an ice cream place there that we like to go to called the Trolley Barn. And inside they have pictures of the interurban line that ran through that little town of Frankfort, Illinois. From 1913 to 1921, eight years. Now you can imagine the amount of capital that was invested in this industry and lost totally of all those miles of interurban line that were built. The only one that still is operating today is out of Chicago, the Chicago to South Bend line, now uh, called call the South Shore line, which is the only survivor of all those companies. It's now owned by the state of Indiana and hauls commuters from uh, Indiana, northwest Indiana, into the city. Uh, but that's the only one that survived. The others all went one by one. The stronger lines lasted until the Depression, and a few very strong lines lasted until after World War II. But the automobile finished them all off. So that was one segment of the, of the railroad business that is not recognized too often by people. But it was built to haul local passengers, and local passengers were the first thing that went to the automobile. All right, more about what happened in the early 20th century and a little bit before. I wanted to talk about the industry and its labor relations. The railroads were the first great unionized industry in America uh, because they had so many employees. Railroads hired over a million people at one point uh, and, and kept hiring all the time as more, were, more lines were built. Uh, they had a policy of hiring people practically off the farm, in many cases directly off the farm. You didn't need an education to be a railroader, at least not much of one. If you could read, you could be in a, you could be in a railroad. If you couldn't read, you could still work for the railroad as a, as a section hand, you know, mending the track and building uh, bridges and things like that. But the... The state of the industry was such that with these huge monopolies and just so fabulously wealthy owners, you had a natural conflict between labor and industry on a scale unseen anywhere else in the country, or for that matter, in the world. And the first great railroad strike took place in 1877. It was a national strike. Uh, and it drove the country absolutely crazy because not only was there a strike, but there was violence and there was property destruction. The, the uh, depot in Pittsburgh was burned to the ground. Uh, the idea of, the, of labor unions interfering with the traffic uh, and interfering with the uh, companies was, was thought, of, thought of as a, a horrible thing. So the railroads have long had a tradition of labor management uh, hostility, going back all the way to the 19th century. If the 1877 strike was bad, the one that happened 16 years later was probably even worse. That was the Great Pullman Strike. And it started not on the railroads themselves, but at the Pullman Company plant in the south end of Chicago. George Pullman 
was a believer in paternalism. In fact, I wrote an article about him called Pullman and Paternalism. He uh, felt that he was the grand senior of the manor, and all the workers were his dependents, and he would protect them and take care of them, however, at a price. Working people in those days did not have very good accommodations. They didn't have make enough money to have more than slum housing for the most part. Well, Mr. Pullman hired some skilled workers at his plant, woodworkers and metal workers and artisans, whatever, and he built a, a company town, the town of Pullman, around his uh, plant where he was producing Pullman cars. And he paid his workers uh, enough money to rent the properties that he built for them to live in. Now, they were far better houses than they could rent anywhere else. But the catch was Mr. Pullman owned every building in the town. And he charged a rent commensurate with what the worker uh, made in the plant so that uh, by the end of the month, by the time the worker paid his rent to Mr. Pullman and bought his food from Mr. Pullman's market and bought his clothes from Mr. Pullman's store and banked at Mr. Pullman's bank, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, he didn't have any paycheck left. Well, this was fine as long as the money kept coming from the plant to the workers. But in 1893, there was another depression. Uh, capitalism is cyclical, and in this country, we have had a major depression roughly every 40 to 60 years. And 1893 was one of the worst. And during that period, uh, the companies weren't buying any Pullman cars, and Mr. Pullman's business fell off. However, he uh, cut the wages of his workers so that he wouldn't lose any more money, but he wouldn't cut the rents, and he wouldn't cut what he charged them for food. And consequently, they were getting further and further in debt every day they tried to stay alive. And there wasn't any place else they could live because it was a company town. Well, they organized. Uh, and at this period, uh, labor unions were getting stronger. Uh, the Pullman workers joined the American Railway Union, which was intended to be a huge industry-wide uh, union of all kinds of workers, uh, the model of what the CIO unions became later. Uh, the company, companies responded by forming what they call the General Managers Association, the executives of the companies. And when the Pullman workers at Pullman went on strike, the American Railway Union voted not to move Pullman cars anywhere in the country uh, in sympathy with the strikers, because they were all members of the same union. And the head of the union was Eugene V. Debs, the great socialist uh, four-time presidential candidate. Debs knew that his union was not strong enough to pull this off. And he told his workers, don't do this strike, you're going to lose. But they wouldn't listen to him, and they voted to strike all over the country. And indeed, uh, the General Managers Association went to Washington and got an injunction from the Attorney General of the United States against the union 
on the grounds that the union was interfering with moving the mails by not putting by not moving trains that had Pullman cars on them. And the strike was broken after a long period of time. Uh, the Pullman workers had to give up. However, uh, Mr. Pullman didn't benefit much from it because he was so scared by what happened during the Pullman strike that when he died a few years later, he put in his will a provision that his grave in the Chicago cemetery where his body is buried be buried under 15 feet of steel and concrete because he was so afraid his body would be desecrated after his death. Uh, Mrs. Pullman was quoted as saying, my husband had a good heart, he was good to his workers, and he believed in paternalism, and so did I. And uh, unfortunately, paternalism doesn't work. Uh, it makes the father happy, but not necessarily the, uh, the workers who he's supposed to be taking care of. So labor relations were a problem. On the other hand, the railroads hired a lot of people and gave them relatively good jobs. Now, I say relatively good jobs, because if you were a railroad worker, you spent a lot of time away from home. And while you made decent money for somebody with no education, it wasn't going to make you rich, and it wasn't going to take care of you in your old age. And that's one reason why the Brotherhoods were formed, the Brotherhoods of Railway Workers, in order to get benefits such as uh, you know, uh, higher wages and better hours. Uh, however, if you were an uneducated kid, you could read, but that's maybe all you could do. You had a possibility of getting hired by the railroad and moving up because one thing the companies did was to promote from within. And if you were an intelligent uh, young man, for example, say you sign up with the railroad as a, uh, a clerk or something, if you learned telegraphy and became a Morse telegraph operator, that was a better job, and it led to even better jobs because telegraphers could become train dispatchers, and train dispatchers could become executives over a division, and a division executive could become a company-wide executive. And a lot of these people who started as locomotive firemen, uh, just breaking their back shoveling coal, wound up 40 or 50 years later as president of the company. It was a way of social mobility. And at the same time, if you were that kind of a young man who didn't mind being away from home a lot, you got to see the country, especially because at that time, all the lines were always hiring. So if you lost your job on one line or you quit your job on one line, you were pretty sure to get a job on another one. The more experience you had, the better it was. So you developed a class of skilled railroaders who disdained the idea of staying in one job in one place all their lives. They wanted to see the country, and they moved to where the life was good. For example, if you were a skilled brakeman, say, and uh, it starts getting cold up in Idaho in the, in the winter, you quit. And you, on your union pass, you were entitled to free transportation, and you went down to Florida, and you worked in Florida for the, for the uh, winter. And then in the summer, when there weren't so many uh, need, workers needed in Florida, 
you went to Nebraska for the wheat rush. And then, you know, you moved around with the traffic. And boomers sometimes worked for 50 or 60 companies in the course of their, uh, their careers. So you developed two completely different kinds of workers. The home guards, who concentrated on the unions and uh, making their conditions better, and the boomers who simply hung around, uh, you know, went somewhere else. <laughs> they didn't always get along together. Anyway, the railroads were a big part of the labor picture, an important part in the late 19th century, the 20th century, up until after World War One. <clears throat> now, this period has one more big thing that we have to talk about, and that is the beginning of nationwide regulation. Up until after the Civil War, uh, nobody thought much about regulating railroads. Uh, they didn't need to. But with all these competing lines uh, and with problems with uh, shippers uh, not having the capacity to uh, pay what the railroads were charging, you began to develop demand to have railroad rates regulated. If you've ever read The Octopus by Frank Norris, uh, one of the great American, uh, what would you say, uh, hell-raising books, he talks about uh, the farmer who thinks he's going to be fine and retiring on his farm and working on his farm until he finds that the railroad has discharged him far more uh, to get his goods to market. Why? Because it could. And he winds up not making any money. And that's the kind of thing that happened all over the country. Uh, Frank Norris's books are set in California, but it, was, it happened everywhere. And regulation started with the states, uh, Illinois and Iowa, uh, in, the, in the farm belt. These are the so-called Granger cases, the Granger lines. Well, uh, the Supreme Court invalidated state regulations, especially after 1870. Uh, there was a change in the composition of the Supreme Court. And where at one time the Supreme Court was friendly to regulation of corporations, uh, it turned around and, uh, in fact, the Supreme Court became the arch-high protector of corporations to the point where it invented, out of whole cloth, one of the most pernicious judicial inventions ever, the idea that a corporation is a person and has rights that of people under the 14th Amendment of the United States. The Supreme Court took a piece of legislation, the 14th Amendment, which was intended to protect the rights of former slaves and turned it into a protection of corporations from business regulation. And if the states couldn't regulate the railroads, who could? Well, the only agency left was the federal government. And after a long fight, the reformers finally won the creation in 1887 of a federal agency with power to regulate the American railroads. And its name was the Interstate Commerce Commission. Now, of course, you'd have a big discussion of what interstate commerce is, but I'm not going to get into that right now. The FCC, the ICC, rather, the ICC had good intentions, but like many regulatory agencies, it came to be dominated by the same businesses that it was supposed to be regulating. Uh, 
And in the 20th century, the ICC uh, came up with a number of ideas that were, uh, shall we say, more in favor of the railroad companies than they were of the public. For one thing, the ICC had the power to deny construction permits to anybody who wanted to build a new railroad. It had to be in the public convenience and necessity. Well, if there were a competing couple of lines who, could, who complained, the FCC would be very reluctant to give you permission to build a new line because that would simply take business away from the existing companies. Well, who are they protecting, the public or the existing companies? And Professor George Hilton at UCLA uh, was one of the leading critics of the ICC. He claimed that over the years the ICC cost the public billions and billions of dollars. Uh, it certainly had enormous effects on the companies. So the regulation of the railroads took place all right, but in some ways it was more favorable to the companies than it was to the public. And all this ended with the end of the ICC. We don't have the ICC anymore. We do have federal regulation, but not nearly as uh, extensive as the ICC's did. And the ICC had the power to set not only maximum rates, but minimum rates. And, of course, the ICC also had control over the power to abandon or build new lines. It was a very powerful, powerful institution. And under it, uh, a lot of things happened that were not good for the industry, surprisingly enough, although the industry probably thought they wanted it that way. One of the things the ICC did was to develop an accounting formula that the railroads were ordered to use, a formula which uh, made passenger traffic, which was a small part of railroading in America. It's never been more than 10%. Uh, passenger traffic is very important to the railroads in Europe and Japan, where you have a much dense population, much closer together. But in America, the passenger train has always been more an ornament uh, than anything else. Sure, before the automobile, the passenger trains were the only way to get around. But when the automobile was developed, and uh, later the airplane, the passenger trains were not important very much to most of the companies. There was only one railroad in America that ever business from passengers, and that was the Long Island Railroad in Long Island, which is now a, still running as a, as a corporation of the state of New York. But anyway, all the others were freight-oriented. So when the ICC developed this accounting formula, you could attribute a large percentage of your losses, something like 20% of your losses, to the passenger trains, even though... If there were no passenger trains, you'd still have the same plant that you had to take care of for the freight trains. Well, as a result of that, a lot of companies were able to go to the ICC and say, look how much money we're losing on our passenger trains. We want to take the train off. And the ICC would generally say, sure, go ahead. You're losing a lot of money by the ICC's formula. Uh, also, another thing the ICC did uh, was to set a maximum speed limit on passenger trains of 79 miles an hour, except where there were special safety devices. Well, the special safety devices were in effect in some places, but they actually were very expensive and didn't pay for anybody who was uh, not already had them to, to put them in. It was much easier just to get rid of your passenger trains. 
So uh, you can see how the ICC worked. Sometimes it favored the companies, often it favored the companies, but sometimes uh, it, it may at the beginning have been more favorable to the public in general, but uh, towards the end, uh, very questionable as to how beneficial the ICC regulation was. Okay, now let's talk about decline but not fall. I've just started talking about the death of the passenger train. Uh, during World War II, something like 95% of all the passenger movement in the country and something like 98% of all military passenger movements were by rail. That ended in 1945. The passenger train had been sick since the 1920s. But about 1933 and 34, with uh, the new technology of diesel power and lightweight aluminum trains, there was a big revival. And that continued until World War II. And then after World War II, the, the company spent a lot of money re-equipping all their passenger trains on the assumption that people would still be riding them. But after World War II, people be, were able to buy automobiles again. During World War II, not only could you not buy an automobile, but tires were rationed and gasoline was rationed. And you couldn't drive your automobile if you had one. After the war, the demand for automobiles surged. And everybody in America bought an automobile. And with the gasoline no longer rationed, and selling for a quarter a gallon, which is about what it was when I was a kid, uh, you know, people took to the highways. The, cl the clincher came in 1957. The death of the passenger train was pretty much uh, a foregone conclusion after 1957 because of two huge changes. One was the construction of the interstate highway system, financed 90% by the federal government. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but when you ride on an interstate highway, uh, unless it was built before the interstate system, the interstate uh, highway system was 90% paid for by federal funds, no matter where it went. Secondly, the development of a jet aircraft. Uh, prop planes came to their own during World War II, and after World War II, I remember flying from Denver to Chicago in a DC-6, uh, about 1950-something. Well, the DC-6 was about the, the fastest plane around, and it took four hours to go from Denver to Chicago. Um, the train took 16. But when the jets came in, you could fly from Los Angeles to New York for four, five hours, and there's no way you could compete with that. Uh, so the jets immediately caused a huge revolution in long-distance travel to the point where today, I would think that uh, jet, jet planes dominate all the long-distance markets. Even today, the aircraft industry and the bus industry and the rail industry all have less together, less than 10% of the passenger traffic. Most American travel is by car. still is, and even though uh, the price of gas has multiplied, um, it still is. And I don't know if that will ever change. But anyway, so the combination of new technology, competing technology, and the fact that the railroads didn't really want their passenger trains anyway because they thought they saw them as a burden rather than a moneymaker, uh, the passenger train pretty much disappeared between 1957 and 1971. 
And the federal government uh, gave the corpse uh, a final blow, so to speak, when the post office department took the mail off the trains in 1967. Up until then, the railroads had been the principal movers of the mail in the country, all over the country. And you had railway post office cars where postal workers would sort the mail while the train was running. And when it got to the next city, the mail was already sorted. And the postal workers just took it to the people's houses. Well, it worked very well, but it was labor-intensive. <clears throat> and the post office department has never been, uh, shall we say, profitable. Uh, as nowadays, it loses billions of dollars. Uh, and the post office department decided to automate. And they moved all the mail to the planes and automated central postal, uh, you know, postal offices that did all the sorting by machine and, of course, didn't need any of the postal workers anymore. Uh, they didn't need the sorters anymore, and they didn't need the trains anymore. Well, when the, the guaranteed income from the mail left the rails, so did a lot of the trains that were carrying the mail. They didn't have that many passengers in the first place. And without the mail, they uh, were... You know, they just weren't making any money at all. So uh, that's what happened to the passenger trains. The freight trains suffered also. The railroad has turned out to be a mass, uh, what shall we say, a mass transportation facility. It's a transportation wholesaler. Think of it this way. Who does the railroad company sell service to? It sells it to big companies shipping large amounts of heavy goods over long distances. The passenger train it was an anomaly all along, when you look at it that way. The passenger train dealt with individuals going you know, 100 miles or whatever it was, uh, where the money has always been in the major shippers over long distances. To this day, the most important commodity shipped by rail is coal. It always has been. Well, coal traffic uh, has shifted. It's become now uh, low sulfur coal going from Wyoming to the east, the power plants. It used to be anthracite coal from the Pennsylvania mountains going to New York to heat people's houses. But coal has always been the principal, the number one item of traffic. Why? Because it's heavy and it needs a lot of hauling. You have to, you have to use a lot of it. Also, the railroads specialized in hauling things that didn't have to get somewhere very fast. Now, you think that was an anomaly, and it was in the, until the uh, development of the interstate highway system. But as soon as the interstate highway system was built, trucks could use it. And inner-city trucks took the cream of the traffic away from the rails. The truck could get there faster and it could go right from door to door. You didn't have to unload it at a freight house and load it onto a truck for delivery. Uh, less than carload freight was dead by uh, the time the uh, interstate highway system came in, so that the railroads were losing money. Uh, even when they were making money, they weren't making enough money to attract new capital. And without new capital, you couldn't improve your facilities. And with the highway system to compete with, you needed high-speed, uh, high-quality uh, transportation facilities. Uh, 
So in the 70s, it looked as if the American railroads were going to go the way of the European railroads and become nationalized as services run by the government from taxpayer money rather than a business supporting itself. And this was the case until 1980. In 1980, however, there was a reversal of federal policy. It happened with a congressman from West Virginia whose name was Harley Staggers, who introduced legislation to deregulate the railroads to a certain degree, a much greater degree. And the Staggers Act passed, and the railroads began to aggressively seek out new traffic uh, to fight with the truckers and to restore their position as freight handlers. Whereas at one point the railroads handled 90% of the freight, by the 1960s and 70s, I think it was down to less than 40%. Only big heavy things like coal and iron ore and uh, stuff like that went by rail. Today, you have an entirely different picture. You get onto the railroad tracks today and wait for the freight trains to come by. And what you'll see is coal trains, yes, but you'll see train after train after train of trucks on flat cars and containers stacked too high. There's been a revolution in transportation. You don't move individual pieces of goods anymore. You move whole containers, truckloads, uh, shiploads at a time. Uh, a 200-car, let's see, a 100-car freight train can have 200 truck trailers on it, or 200 containers, all run at 70 miles an hour by a two-man or one-man crew. There are, to move the same goods, the uh, 200 containers, you need 200 truck drivers and 200 tractors. It's now the trucks that can't compete with the railroads on long-distance uh, long distance movements. And it's become a worldwide phenomenon, too. Those containers you see on the, the railroads may have been loaded in Singapore and will be unloaded in Munich by going by ship, then by train across the North American continent, and then by ship back to Europe. Uh, this happens all the time. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. The container is never opened from the time it's sealed in the originating country to the time it arrives at the final destination. And it may ride by truck, it may go by train, it may go by ship. The same container. So it's a completely different business now. It's also become a different business because beginning with the 60s, when the railroad companies began to feel the pinch, they started looking for ways to economize, and there were two big things they could do. One was to change the way they used labor. The railroads were so labor-intensive up until after World War II. Today, there are only a fraction of the number of railroad workers, but they have become much higher paid. If you do not have an education and you want to make some money, and you don't mind crazy hours and a lot of time away from home, you know, the railroad can give you a pretty good job. You can make 50000 to $60,000 a year uh, being a railroad worker these days. Those are uh, highly prized jobs. 
for people with no education. All right, the other thing that happened was businesses began to merge, corporations began to merge. After World War II, there were something like 120 Class One, so-called railroads, uh, companies that had at least a million dollars a year in business. You know how many major lines there are today in North America? Seven. From 120 to seven. And two of those are Canadian. So uh, within the United States, the railroad business has become much more a, uh, a nationalized, not nationalized, not, it's privately owned, but a national phenomenon rather than a local phenomenon. Whereas uh, in the... Uh, 1945 to 1960 or so, there were six different railroad companies competing for the business between Chicago and Omaha and Nebraska. Today, there are three, and they're all you know, highly uh, competitive big corporations. Uh, this has happened all over the country. Mergers, mergers, and mega-mergers. Uh, today, the two biggest western lines are the Union Pacific, which is the biggest of them all, and the Burlington Northern Santa Fe, BNSF, which Warren Buffett now owns. And when he bought it, he said, we'll never sell this. This is the transportation of the future. In the east, you still have three, uh, well, it's like three companies. You have uh, Norfolk Southern and... CSX, which doesn't stand for anything, it's just initials, and uh, those two, plus there's one independent, the Kansas City Southern, which really owes its existence to NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, because the KCS was smart enough to see that there was going to be huge demand for travel, uh, tr uh, transportation between the central part of the United States and Mexico, and the KCS is a, uh, a company that specializes in its southern connections into Central America and Mexico. The other two are the two Canadian giants, Canadian National and Canadian Pacific, which all own American properties. The Canadian National extends from the east coast of Canada to the west, and from the polar, uh, near the polar region, like, what is it, um, what's the great Hudson's Bay? Hudson's Bay to the Gulf Coast of the United States. That's how big the Canadian National is. And the Canadian Pacific is not very much behind. So it's a completely different business today. It's a profitable business. The freight business on the railroads is making money. And they're putting the money back into new and better facilities. Norfolk Southern has been dynamiting tunnels and enlarging the clearances to make a path for double-stack trailers from the east coast port of Norfolk to the central Midwest. Uh, the Burlington Northern, uh, BNSF, has double-tracked its entire transcontinental line from California to Chicago so that it has capacity double what it was, or nearly double what it was 15 years ago. And the trains run faster, and they're safer. Uh, they don't get broken up, uh, they don't stop for hours at uh, yards to switch, and the traffic is a steady stream. Our favorite thing to do when we're driving between Chicago and California, which we do often, <clears throat> is to stop in Arizona and watch 
the traffic go by on the BNSF Transcon line. In 19, uh, 2006, there was a train on that uh, Transcon about every 20 minutes, a freight train. During the peak of the recession, about 2008, 2007, 2008, you had to wait maybe double that much time to see a big train go by. And now it's back to where it was in uh, six years ago. So uh, we can we can tell the recession is over. All we got to do is watch the number of trains that go by. And these trains are 70 miles an hour freight trains. Uh, you know, there was a time when a freight train ran 10 or 15 miles an hour. Not anymore. With these huge, powerful diesel engines, all of which are now far cleaner than the diesel engines of 20 years ago or 30 years ago were. Uh, they're far more uh, ecologically sound, and they keep getting better year by year. And they go faster, and they are so powerful that a hundred-car train can move with four or five or six locomotives under the control of one engineer at speeds up to 70 miles an hour. Uh, just phenomenal. It's, it, for somebody who grew up during World War II and after, and remembers the way things were when they had uh, steam engines powering the, all the trains and the smoke and the cinders and uh, were everywhere. I can remember Hammond, Indiana, when I was a kid. It was so dark in Hammond that you didn't know the sun was shining because of all the coal smoke from the locomotives. Different game, folks, different game. And now we're seeing the resurgence uh, in the United States, just the beginnings of high-speed rail passenger service. Uh, Europe has had it for years. Japan has had it even longer. And we're just starting. Uh, the Northeast Corridor in the United States uh, is now totally electrified from Washington to Boston. It used to only go as far as New Haven, but now it goes all the way to Boston. And the trains there are running at speeds up to 150 miles an hour. And as they get some new equipment in the next few years, it's going to be faster. They'll probably get up to 200 miles an hour before long and start rivaling the Japanese and uh, Europeans. And now the Chinese who are doing the same thing in large uh, and in a huge way. The Chinese are spending a huge amount of money building high-speed intercity rail passenger service. We're seeing just the beginning of it in the Midwest now. The line between Chicago and St. Louis, uh, which has always taken five and five and a half hours, is being updated to run trains at 110 miles an hour, and we'll get the traffic down to about four hours, the time between downtown Chicago and downtown St. Louis, to four hours, maybe even a little less, by, 19, see, by 2015. Uh, it's supposed to open by 2015, and that will beat the flying time because it takes an hour to fly, but you got to get to the airport two hours early. And when you get to the airport, you have to drive to the airport, which adds more time. And then you got to get to the airport in St. Louis to wherever you're going in St. Louis. And it's just not going to be competitive. It already isn't competitive with the train in the East Coast Corridor. The railroad has more than half the business between Boston and Washington. Uh, more than half the people. It's uh, taken the uh, Eastern Airlines, remember Eastern Airlines shuttle? Uh, doesn't exist anymore. So uh, we're in a revival period for the railroads. Uh, good times and better times to come. 
And Bob, I think uh, that just about sums up all the things I wanted to say tonight. Well, Ira, we're so glad about the revival of the railway. Everybody just sort of, some of us wrote it off and so forth. Could you talk about Amtrak? How does that fit in the mix? We well, always yeah, hear I actually have Amtrak. to talk about Amtrak without saying it. Amtrak was formed in 1971. Um, we, we really think that the reason why President Nixon signed the bill was because he saw it as a way for the railroads to get rid of all the passenger trains. Uh, well, <laughs> Amtrak now is carrying far more people than it has ever carried before uh, in the millions of passengers every, every year. And uh, as high speed gets more important, Amtrak will carry more and more passengers. It's also uh, useful in a different way. For example, take the Empire Builder, the Chicago to Seattle train. It goes through places like uh, North Dakota and eastern Montana, where the population is very, very, what would you say, very thin, very thinly spread out. And there is no other public transportation reaching these towns. You either take the train or you walk <laughs> or you drive, of course. Uh, the airlines are abandoning those smaller towns. And with the cutbacks in the air traffic controllers, it's going to be much worse. Uh, airlines don't want to serve communities where they can't make money. And they can't make money flying with high high fuel costs to places that don't produce enough passengers. Uh, you have to have a, a number of passengers flying regularly. Airlines live on the passengers who go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, business travelers particularly. And that's all changing now. The airlines can't afford it. Uh, you saw how much money the airlines have been losing. Now they're making money again after the recession. But the fuel prices are crushing the airlines. Uh, they burn so much fuel. Now, the new uh, Boeing jet, the 787, is supposed to be much more efficient, and we'll see how that affects things. But uh, there are many, many towns and cities, and even some fairly big ones, who don't have the air service they used to have and are never going to have it again. One of those is St. Louis. St. Louis used to be the hub of TWA. Well, there is no more TWA, and all those flights that used to run in St. Louis aren't there anymore. And that's going to happen to more and more places as more and more air travel is concentrated in the uh, major markets, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and the Texas markets. You know. uh, but small cities and cities on the fringe are suffering, and they're going to suffer more. So there's, of course, there's a market even for the traditional passenger train because it's the only public transportation available. As you alluded, they're furloughing the controllers, so it's going to get worse for the airlines. Yeah, you know, what is that? they've got uh, several hundred controllers. They're, they're just not going to be there anymore Right. at small airports. Okay, let's so I don't see know how they buy what they're going to do. Let's see if Don or Ruth Ann first uh, or others here have any questions. Don, are you there? Uh, well, uh, are the uh, I hear these commercials that say how cheap it is to haul freight that you can go bum hundred miles on a, a ton of freight, and I'm, I've forgotten what the numbers were, but just incredible. It's uh, 
Well, yeah, you see the advertisements uh, that the railroad companies use. What they're pointing out is a ton of freight can go, uh, you know, so much further on a train because the train is carrying so many tons of the same amount of gas. You know, if you had a truck that was using diesel fuel and the truck is hauling, say, 20 tons of freight, that 20 tons of freight that on that truck is using that diesel fuel uh, becomes part of a train hauling 200 of those trailers for uh, the amount of diesel fuel is much lower per truck. Okay, Ruth, and you have a bullet train. Hold on. Let's see if Ruth Ann has a question here. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. uh, Don wanted to uh, follow up a little bit. Go ahead, Don. I was just saying we're, we're sure praying for the bullet train here in California anyway. I was going to get to the yeah. bullet train, yeah. <laughs> if we never get it. high-speed train is a, is a big question mark because yeah. Yeah. nobody knows if it's ever really going to be worth it. Uh, right. The problem there is the distance between the Bay Area and Southern California is so great that even if the train is going 200 miles an hour, it's still going to take two and a half hours to get there, even if it doesn't stop. And you could fly for an hour in an hour, mm -hmm. and plus your airport uh, travel times. So it's at best competitive, but certainly won't have an advantage. And it's so expensive to build. Uh, that the only agencies that can afford it really is the, is the government, the federal government. And they aren't putting up all the money. So, I, frankly, I don't know that it will ever be built. Let's see if yeah. some, some... I have a Go question. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering if the, uh, the sleeper cars, I, I realize Pullman is no longer around, oh, yeah. but uh, are yeah, they Pullman still is, is out of the, the picture, But the railroad, the Amtrak runs sleeping cars, yes. Wait, go ahead, Ruthann. What about the sleeper cars? Yeah, they, I was just wondering if they, you know, the railroads still have them, and are there, you know, any luxury lines? I think of the Orient Express. I mean, uh, <laughs> it, it, well, you won't find the Orient Express, but you will find privately owned uh, luxury trains. Uh, for example, in Canada, uh, where there's a big tourist market, there are trains that run for the tourist market. That's all they do. They're not designed to carry ordinary travelers. They carry travel tourists who sign up to take the train so they can see the gorgeous scenery. But yes, the Amtrak does operate sleeping cars, and uh, they run uh, between the West Coast and Chicago. Uh, they run sleeping cars from Chicago to New Orleans, New York to New Orleans, uh, east, down the East Coast, from New York to Florida. Uh, there are many sleeping car routes. And then one thing, too, about the song, I was thinking about some of the songs that have, uh, uh, you know, about the train, such as Casey Jones or the the Rock Island Line. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Uh, that's something you know, I didn't even got into. That's a whole different story, but uh, it's certainly part of, the, part of the story. And think of the impact the railroads have had on the language, for example. Uh, you're asleep at the switch. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, what's a, what are two baseball games in one day? What do you call it? Double header. Double header comes from two locomotives on the same train. Oh. Uh, there's, okay. it's, it's just so many. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's had a huge impact on our culture. And I didn't even get into that. That would be a, an entirely different story. But, that would be uh, great. Uh, the story. Maybe we'll do one on 
uh, railroad and culture. Oh, yeah. yeah. It would be fun with uh, Casey Jones and all that. Did it really happen and what happened and so forth? Yes, Casey Jones was a real person. His real name was John Luther Jones, and he was an engineer on the Illinois Central Railroad uh, in from uh, Memphis to uh, Mississippi in 1900. And he was a fast runner and maybe took more risks than he ought to. And in this particular day, uh, he was trying to make up time with his mail train. And uh, there was a, the line was blocked and he didn't know about it. And he ran into a, the rear end of a freight train that wouldn't get out of the way. And he was killed in the accident, the only person killed. That was April 30th, 1900, in Vaughan, Mississippi, which I bet you never heard of. No. But no. the reason why okay. Casey Jones' name, wait a minute, I'll tell you some story about this. The reason why you've heard of Casey Jones today is that there was a uh, illiterate engine wiper, you know, who uh, washed the engines, whose name was Wallace Saunders, a black guy, uh, in Memphis. And he knew Casey and liked Casey. After Casey died, Wallace Saunders made up a song about Casey Jones, the brave engineer. Well, it was sung up and down the line in, uh, in Mississippi and the Tennessee, and a couple of Tin Pan Alley songwriters heard it. And they stole the, the melody, and they never gave uh, Wallace Saunders a cent for it. They made up their own words. But the name Casey Jones remained, and uh, da 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 da. Everybody knows it. It's, it's part yeah. of American culture. But Casey Jones was a real person. Then there's wow. John Henry. John yeah. Henry was a real person. You know John mm-hmm. Henry, the steel driving man. Yes. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yes. He well, uh, I worked to. on the worked on the Chesapeake and Ohio line. Uh, building tunnels in uh, West Virginia, I think. And he supposedly uh, worked so hard to beat the machine that he burst his heart and died. Well, I don't know if that happened, but there was a man named John Henry who was a steel driver. My goodness. That's amazing. Ira, let's end on that. I want to Did thank we want you. to see if anybody... Uh, no, no. End on that. And our audience uh, listening, please forgive us. We... Don't want to wear our speaker out here. But uh, thank you so much, Ira, and I will be in touch. And uh, All right. this was wonderful. Next time will be a different topic. Okay, we'll do it. Okay. I'll be in yeah, touch. I don't know what it will be yet. You tell me. <laughs> anyway. It'll be great, thank you whatever all you do. Thank for listening, and uh, thanks, Bob, for inviting me to do this. Thank I, you, I Ira, and have a fun in Chicago. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye now. Good night. Better.